1: Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
0: The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities.
1: So I don't feel like I am the most picky when it comes to toilet paper, (laughs) but I mean, I have some standards is Mm. all I'm saying.
2: Well, that's a difference between you and I. I have none whatsoever. Growing up in northern Maine, um, we used whatever was available. Corn husks, (laughs) Pop-Tart boxes. (laughs) Whatever was available.
1: Yeah. Well, you've just you've got to keep in mind that my butt is also involved when you're just picking up a random roll of toilet paper. Yeah.
2: Kat sent me to the store to buy toilet paper, and I came back with, uh, well, I didn't research it uh, very carefully. I just read the title of it, and uh, it sounded nice. Uh, what was it? Like Heavenly Soft or something like yeah, that?
1: And it's always those cheap garbage toilet papers that uh, have those deceiving kinds of names like they're called angel wings or something when really they're, they're just the worst.
2: Yeah. Well, let's talk about that for a moment. Who wants to wipe their ass with an angel's wing? I'm sure the angels would protest.
1: I don't know. But all I know is that I could still see the tree rings in the toilet paper that you brought home <laughs> and it was
2: terrible. Yeah. There were, there were chunks of wood in it. Yeah. That was a, a horrible toilet paper buying decision on my part. <laughs> Makes me wish for the days when I had corn husks and Pop-Tart boxes. (laughs) Oh, you had an update, you said.
1: Yeah. Oh, don't sound so excited about it. Oh, okay. Yeah, no. Um, I did want to mention we talked about Brandon Lawson uh, some time ago. It must have been... Two years ago. It
2: was a couple of years back.
1: Uh, Brandon Lawson uh, disappeared in 2013, and it was under very mysterious circumstances, and his family never gave up hope that they might find out what happened to Brandon. And I I follow Help Find Brandon Lawson on Facebook, and just a day ago, they posted an update um, that after eight and a half years, they may finally have some closure Um, they one of the search parties who are still out there looking for Brandon after all this time incredible um, came across some clothing that matched what Brandon was wearing that day and they believe they have found uh, remains that that might be Brandon so DNA tests of course will be needed to confirm the id but uh, the family's pretty sure that that it's him
2: after so much time too you always want to hold out hope Mm -hmm. but after eight and a half years you start to really well it must be hard to hang on to that sort of hope so that's tragic news but maybe in some way it'll give them some some closure
1: anyway i just wanted to share that with you um it was a story that kind of uh, hit me hard so um i don't know there you go All right. Hopefully you've got something cheery. No,
2: mine ends pretty well, but Uh uh, it's not a cheerful story. Oh, okay. Here we go. Quote, I'd become a ghost, a faded memory of a boy people once knew and loved. For 13 years, Martin Pastoris suffered from locked-in syndrome. He appeared to be in a a vegetative state. In fact, that's what the doctors told his family, that even though Martin was there at least physically, he wasn't really there. But in reality, nobody saw him, but he was there. At the age of 12 years in South Africa, Martin Pistorius unexpectedly became very sick, was sick with a strange illness. It bewildered his doctors. And the general consensus was that, uh, at least initially, that Martin had contracted cryptococcal meningitis. <sighs> In January of 1988, Martin came home from school with a sore throat, and it just got worse. Slowly over the next few weeks, he stopped eating, and he seemed to sleep constantly. Mm. His body became weaker, so he stopped using it. Uh, He would just lay in bed. He continued to deteriorate to the point that he started forgetting things, facts, stuff that he knew, and finally he began to forget the people around him, who they were.
1: Oh, how scary that must have been for his family.
2: Yes, and and for him, of course. Of course. But he did not recognize their faces anymore. He had no facial recognition capabilities. He lost control of his limbs. They became more spastic, and eventually they curled in on themselves. The doctors tried everything to help this kid. He's only 12 years old. They did just about every type of medication that they thought might benefit him, but nothing worked. This went on for about a year. And then they finally said that they'd run out of treatment options. And at this point, the official diagnosis was, quote, degenerative neurological disorder, cause and prognosis unknown. His parents were basically told, yeah, get his things and take him home and just let this run its course. Your son's not going to get better. Oh, geez. He's unresponsive. He's in a vegetative state. Uh, He's not responding to any types of treatment. He's going to die, and probably in short order, within a few weeks.
1: And with no real reason why this is happening, that must have
2: been just terrifying. Oh my God, I can't even imagine it. But here's the thing, Martin didn't die. He had lost his ability to to move and to make eye contact and to speak, and years passed. For four years, between the ages of 12 and 16, Martin remembers nothing. But at the age of 16, he began to wake up was a slow process, and it took about three years for him to fully regain his awareness. Oh,
1: my gosh.
2: Now, I read his book, Ghost Boy, um, when it came out 10 years ago or so. And in it, he talks about what a slow process this was, and he describes it this way. Quote, I'm a sea creature crawling along the ocean floor. It's dark here, cold. There's nothing but blackness above, below, and all around me. And then I begin to see snatches of light glimmering overhead. I don't understand what they are, but something tells me I must, I must try to reach them. It drives me upward as I kick toward the shards of light, which skitter across the surface far above me. They dance as they weave patterns of gold and shadow. He then describes a series of images that he first sees, little snapshots as he started to uh, become aware of his surroundings again. Mm-hmm. Quote, my eyes focus. I'm staring at a baseboard. I'm sure it looks different than it normally does, but I don't know how. A whisper across my face. Wind. I can smell sunshine. Music high and tinny. Children singing. Their voices fade in and out, loud, then muffled, until they fall silent. A carpet swims into view. It's a swirl of black and white and brown. I stare at it, trying to make my eyes focus, but the darkness comes for me again. A washcloth is pushed cold across my face, and I feel my cheek flame with disapproval as a hand holds my neck steady. I hear a voice saying, we've got to make sure you're a clean boy now, don't we? Snatches of light become brighter. I'm getting closer to the surface. I want to break through, but I can't. Everything is too fast, whereas I am still. Mm. so he knew that there was more he was becoming more aware but he didn't know how to as he described it break through the surface and regain his full consciousness or awareness slowly but surely over a three-year period the glimpses that he gathered of a light and reality became more and more constant eventually he became fully aware of his surroundings. The problem was nobody else knew that he was there. He still looked to them as if he was in a vegetative state.
1: Oh, geez. And why would they think any differently? If he had been unaware of his surroundings for four years, then yeah. why why would they think differently?
2: And he has no ability to move or speak. He There's nothing he can do to tell them that he is aware of his surroundings.
1: This reminds me of the story you did about the sleeping.
2: Yes. um, um, Sleeping plague. It was, I can't remember the exact medical terminology, but it was something like narcoleptic encephalitis or something something like like that. that. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. It presents similarly, but they don't know what it was. In an interview with NPR, Martin later said, quote, I was aware of everything just like any normal person. I could see, I could hear and understand everything, but I could not move my body. Oh, jeez. During this time period, the years began to really take its toll on his family. As you can imagine, Mm -hmm. he had a mother and a father and a brother and a sister. And his mother and father were under such great stress and frustration and pressure. He remembers one time in particular – that his mother became extremely frustrated. She, of course, didn't know that he was aware mm. of what she was doing and saying. And she looked right at him and begged him to just die.
1: Yeah.
2: He explained that everyone was so used to him not being there that they didn't notice when he began to present again. And this horrifying reality came over him that he was going to spend the rest of his life like this, oh, totally alone, alone. Martin said, quote, my existence was tortured monotony, a reality that was often too much to bear. Alone with my thoughts, I constructed intricate fantasies about the ants running across my floor. I taught myself to tell time by noticing where the shadows were as I learned how the shadows moved as the hours and the day progressed. I understood how long it would be before I was picked up and taken home. Seeing my father uh, walk through the door to collect me was the best moment of the day. My mind became a tool that I could use either to close down, to retreat from my reality, or enlarge it into a gigantic space that I could fill with possibilities. That's incredible.
1: Yeah, I think it's really hard to understand what that experience must even be like. I mean, beyond it being scary and sad and lonely what your mind is capable of when you're in that kind of situation. It, it, I mean, brains are terrifying.
2: Although he spent most nights at home with his parents and his family during the day, his folks had to go work, so he spent his time at a healthcare facility. Mm-hmm. And sometimes he'd spend the nights there when his parents were away. He talked about uh, his time at some of these facilities when he was aware of what was going on, but nobody was aware that he was aware. Yeah. He said, quote, I was a silent observer of how people behaved when they thought no one was watching because everyone around him thought he was uh, in a vegetative state. He witnessed and experienced many things that you and I would not from little annoying things, like how people when they thought that they were alone in their room with him would just let farts rip. Sure. To severe moments, serious moments when he was actually assaulted. He, he remembered one time that, uh, one of his healthcare workers was trying to get him cleaned up and she was in a bad mood. She put him in a bathtub and scrubbed him so roughly that he was bleeding into the bathwater. The healthcare attendant then brushed his teeth, rinsed the toothbrush in the bloody bathwater, and continued to brush his teeth. But it didn't stop there. And I have to give you a trigger warning right now sexual assault. There was one healthcare worker who would come in when no one else was around and masturbate against him. He would just lie there wondering what he had done to deserve this. Now, this experience in particular caused recurring nightmares when he was asleep. And he was in constant anxiety when he was awake. Every time he'd hear the door open, he was fearful it was going to be this one particular healthcare worker again. Yet, every day, he forced himself to engage with reality more and more and attempt in some way to let people know that he was in there. He still was trying to find a way. Oftentimes, they would leave the TV on for him. They would just put him in his wheelchair uh, for hours on end. Mm-hmm. And often, they would position him in a way that uh, was so acutely uncomfortable that he prayed that everything would just end. He talked about how oftentimes they would sit him on his testicles.
1: Oh, jeez! And he
2: would have to sit there and endure that for hours at a time. At these types of moments, it's when he felt most desperate and longed to give up. But there was one thing that really motivated him. To push forward, it was a TV show that was on, and he was forced to watch day in and day out. That TV show was Barney the Purple Dinosaur. Oh no! He knew that he was he was going to have to watch this every day if he didn't get better, and that alone uh, motivated him to stay engaged in in reality. Oh wow! He just couldn't bear the idea of watching Barney for the rest of his life. So that's
1: um. <laughs> <laughs> So this, this story, and um, I know it's already kind of a bummer, but this this hits really close to home for me um, because, as you know, my my brother was in a terrible accident when I was very young, and he lived uh, with severe brain damage for some time, and you didn't know how aware he was of his surroundings. You couldn't tell if he recognized you mm. or if he was just reacting to right. a change. And and um, one of the things that my dad did that um, he thought was a great idea was that he would um, – put the TV on for Darren, um, but he'd but he'd put Baywatch on. And he you know would make jokes about how like, oh, Darren likes Baywatch, ha huh. ha ha, yeah, you know. Right. And all I could think was that it must be, have been like terribly frustrating, And but you don't know. You, yeah, don't, you know don't know if it was enjoyable or if it was frustrating or if there was no understanding of what was going on at all.
2: Well, Martin was getting to the point where he was uh, 18, 19, 20 years old and they were still making him watch Barney. And he talks about that, about how just because a person appears to be in this state doesn't mean that they've stopped growing and maturing. Right. They still treated him like he was, well, basically an infant. Mm. Um, they said that the doctors said that he probably had the cognitive skills of maybe a, a six month old baby. Oh,
1: geez.
2: When in reality, yeah. that was not the case. But then one day, an aromatherapist named Verna arrived and things changed forever. In his book, Ghost boy. He talks about the smell of mandarin oil as uh, Verna would massage his arms. He said that Verna would talk to him differently. She looked at him differently. Her eyes would linger a little bit longer than most. Then one day, Verna saw this TV program about a woman who had been helped to communicate after she was rendered mute by a stroke. And she started thinking about Martin and how maybe this could help him. She attended a seminar on various types of computer equipment at the time that was being being used to help people communicate. Martin remembers her looking at him and saying, Do you think you could do something like that, Martin? I'm sure you could. Soon, she convinced the doctors and the medical experts around Martin to give him a series of tests. The results were encouraging. Soon they had him interacting with software whose cursor was controlled by eye movement, Uh, I've seen this Mm -hmm. demonstrated on TV. It's pretty remarkable. And and this would have been, you know, early 2000s. So state-of-the-art stuff. Martin was able to raise his head up a little bit to get his eyes to fall on the screen, but the method proved to be too imprecise. So they gave him a dial scan and head switch. It was explained to him that he could use the yellow switch to control the pointer on the scan as it goes around and stop it to identify the symbol he wanted to identify. He was amazed when he found it worked right away. Oh, wow. Soon he began to slowly communicate with people for the first time since he was 12 years old. It had been more than 10 years. He became more proficient with the technology, and the technology kept moving forward and improving. His thoughts improved as well, and so did his body. Soon he made a remarkable recovery. Soon after, he was able to start to communicate. He spoke about major world events that he was aware of because he would hear it going on on TV when, sure. he, was, uh, when he was still locked in. He, he knew of the death of Princess Diana, uh, Nelson Mandela becoming president, the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Centers in the U.S. Before long, he'd recovered well enough to re-enter life. He had to relearn many things, even how to read and recognize certain objects. But things started to come back. He was able to get a job making photocopies, and that sounds maybe boring for us, but to him, it was amazing. He couldn't believe that he was able to actually do this. After so long of just being propped up in a wheelchair, he eventually enrolled in college and studied computer science, and after graduating, started a successful online company. Wow. He met his wife, Joanna, who was a UK resident in 2008 through his uh, sister Kim, who had moved to the United Kingdom for her job. He later moved to the United Kingdom from South Africa, and they were married in 2009. He describes this terrifying experience of being aware but paralyzed in a, a short video recorded in 2018 when the couple was about to have a child. By that time, while still using a wheelchair, he was racing at it competitively. Their son, Sebastian Albert Pastoris, was born a few months later on December 6th, 2018.
1: That is remarkable.
2: And the book is amazing. It's a Simon & Schuster published uh, memoir. It came out in 2011. It's called Ghost Boy. He made several media appearances, including that TED Talk event in uh, Kansas City. If you've ever seen a picture of Martin Pistorius on TV or a video of him um, talking or explaining what, what's going on, he still communicates through, through his keyboard. The first thing that will strike you, and it certainly struck me, is his big, beautiful smile. Aww. It's remarkable to see a man who is so cut off from the world, tortured by his solitary existence and abused by some who were entrusted to care for him, become such a positive, uplifting life force. In his TED Talk, he talked about the small moments that kept him going, besides the idea of, you know...
1: Not having to watch Barney. Yes.
2: He said, quote, I remember one particular little moment. My dad left me alone in the car when he quickly went in to buy something from the store. A random stranger walked past and looked at me, and he smiled I may never know why, but that simple act, that fleeting moment of human connection transformed how I was feeling, making me want to keep going. Oh. My information came from Ranker, Wikipedia, but mostly from Martin's beautifully written and inspiring book Ghost Boy.
1: Um and I don't know. Have you ever watched The Diving Bell and the Butterfly? No. Very similar story. Really? Um, it's an adult man, though, who is struck with a stroke. And same kind of... He suffers from locked-in syndrome, and they find that he is able to communicate using eye movements. Incredible. And it really is. It's a tough watch, but it is absolutely... It's wonderful. And um, I'm just... I'm overwhelmed with stories like this and I don't know if it's, I, you know, I don't know. It, it's, it was a nice story. Go. Good job.
2: I'm sorry. Was that too close to home for you? I'm sorry if it was.
1: No, it, it's not. It's just, you know, there's always questions about yeah, how, yeah. you know, your brain works and I know. who knows.
2: But it was funny how he hated Barney, right? <laughs> and no that thing in the middle back in 2011 a russian terrorist who was known as the black widow was preparing an explosive device for an attack she had attached her cell phone as its detonation device as she was getting ready to leave and go to the target site her mobile carrier sent a spam message wishing her a happy new year detonating the device and blowing her to kingdom come
0: here at Box Laboratories, we're working on new podcast projects so confidential, even we don't know what they are. This is The Box of Oddities.
2: I've got to tell you the longer we've had our Aura Frame, the more I love it. I have kids
0: With Kat and Jethro Gilligan Toth.
1: Okay, prepare your your portain for this <laughs> okay. because um, I was excited about sharing this message that we got um, from Luke, and then you told your story, and there's some there's a boo effect, and so just get ready. Okay. My wife and I just listened to episode 400, and Kat was talking about her premonitions. I want to share my own. I was in grade seven, and it's very common for school students in this year to go to the capital, Canberra, to learn about the federal government. I was living in Mount Gambier, South Australia at the time, so it was about a two-day bus ride. Wow! For months leading up to the trip, I had recurring dreams. I was sitting on the bus... And a kid in my class, Sean, was listening to the radio in headphones. He suddenly stood up and yelled to everyone on the bus, something shocking, but I couldn't hear what it was. Everyone around me was surprised, and some were crying. Hmm. After the same dreams, every night we were finally on the bus to Canberra. And then it happened. Sean stood up and yelled something shocking. This time I heard it. Princess Diana died in a car accident in
2: Paris. Oh, my God wow yeah when that just came in
1: yeah like two days ago
2: good lord wow
1: thank you so much for sharing that luke and it's just so strange to me that it happened to you know that's the thing that you mentioned that martin recalled from being on tv it's just very weird that that came up at the same time anyway
2: we actually got a flurry of emails this week about boo effects uh, Camilla write, writes hey guys I think I just experienced my first boo effect I've been catching up and listening to box 363 on my drive home you start the episode by talking about how the lady doing cat's nails had a tattoo of 1111 and also how her sister sees 222 appear all the time well I pull up at the drive through for some breakfast and the guy in front of me has a license plate that reads 1111 see the picture below and it was on 2222 so there that's my boo effect. That made me chuckle this morning. And then this one from Michael, I was so excited I had to email you immediately. I live I live near Nashville, Tennessee. I was out running errands and listening to Box 403 about the Camel Girl. I was in Hendersonville, Tennessee when you guys said she was born in Henderson, Tennessee. I then pulled the car into the closest parking lot because I had to tell Cat and Jethro. <laughs> Side note, you definitely need to do a show in Nashville. And uh, yeah, I yeah. mean, we, we are, are I mean, we're gonna, gonna, we're gonna, we're, we're gonna. gonna, and in Huntsville, Alabama and a couple of more dates that we'll announce coming up uh, very soon. We, we have the dates in Nashville and Alabama secured, but we're just waiting for them to be able to put the tickets up for sale. and Then we'll tell you all about that. In the meantime, tell me something awesome. All right. Something not depressing. So,
1: okay, I can do that. So we all know the story about how late one night, uh, while Mary Shelley and her fella and Lord Byron and some other writers were stranded in Switzerland during a storm. Uh, Lord Byron challenged the group to write a horror story, and that's when she started writing what would become Frankenstein. Yeah, So she, Mary Shelley, and her husband eloped to France and Switzerland, but they were returning to England by riverboat through Germany. And one of their stops along the way was the city of Darmstadt. Now, on a nearby hilltop overlooking that city were the crumbling remains of a mid-13th century Frankenstein castle. Oh. The word Frankenstein predates Mary Shelley's story by centuries. The term Frank refers to the ancient Germanic tribe, while Stein means stone. And so Frankenstein literally means Stone of the Franks.
2: Or the name of their castle.
1: Yes, or the name of their castle. Sure. Sure. But it wasn't until 400 years later that things in the castle started to get a little bit "franky," which was my play on the word freaky. But it didn't come out. It did land in, where are you. It no. didn't. Sorry, right. No. Nope. <sighs> Conrad Dipple was born in the castle in 1673. He practiced anatomy as well as alchemy. There was a legend about the town that tells of a Lord George of Frankenstein, who lived in the castle and fought a dragon that lurked in a nearby well. The legend goes that the Lord was stung by the dragon's poison tail during a fight, and then he died trying to get back to the castle.
2: I didn't know dragons lived in wells.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously.
2: Okay.
1: it's alleged that the tomb of Lord George can still be visited in the church in the nearby village of nieder Bierbach. Now, it's not super likely that George was killed by a dragon. <laughs> but there is an interesting connection to poison and wells, though. Now, as we talked about, Dippel, who was way into alchemy.
2: Frankenstein's monster is much more menacing than Dippel's monster. <laughs>
1: It's true. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Dipple sounds like a driver's ed teacher.
1: It sure does. Yeah. You know. Well, I remember when so- oh I was younger, someone had insisted that Frankenstein's monster's name was actually Adam. And I couldn't ever recall anyone else ever saying that. And so I was, for the longest time, I was always confused about what his name really was. And I don't think he really had a name other than the monster, which I think is really rude.
2: Here, let me look this up. Hang on. Okay. Uh, Mary Shelley's original novel, the name for Frankenstein's monster was Kevin.
1: Stop that. That's not true.
2: Actually, she never gave him a name. Okay. But, yeah, rude. But when speaking to his creator, Victor Frankenstein, the monster does say, I ought to be thy Adam. That's okay. where it, that came from. Got but, it. But he officially um, was called Kevin.
1: No, it's not accurate.
2: Kevin Frankenstein. Little Kevy. Little Kevy, Frank.
1: Kev, Kev. Anyway, Dipple created an elixir known as Dipple's oil, and it was derived from pulverized animal bones. Mm. It was a very dark, viscous oil, and it was used as late as World War II as a chemical warfare agent. What? It rendered wells undrinkable without actually making them poisonous. Okay. But years before, oddly, Dipple had a very similar sounding tincture, again, an animal oil, which he claimed could cure any illness. So the thing that he was like, yeah, this is a cure-all, was so disgusting (laughs) that, that it was used in chemical warfare. He was part of a large wave of the popularity of iatrochemistry, which was that kind of weird time between This magic alchemy where people thought that they could change, you know, regular old dirt and rocks and stuff into gold to the point where they were trying to use chemistry as medicine. Right, right. It was a learning curve. Let me tell you what. (laughs) But Dipple told everyone that because of this gross elixir, he would live to 135. Instead, he ended up dying of a stroke at the age of 61. Oh. Now, Dipple had strong opinions about religion and politics, and he had many enemies throughout the field of alchemy and the upper class. It, it could have been his strong opinions about religion and politics, or it could have been that he kept pushing these weird animal bone oils on everyone. <laughs> Here, try some of this. Yeah. He was very suspicious. Suspicious of most of the alchemists of his time. He had strained relationships with almost everyone in his path. Teachers said that he was just impossible to work with. His peers said that he was quote-unquote dangerous. He just wasn't a cool kid. And more than once, he had to relocate abruptly because of articles written about his personal exploits that were very unflattering.
2: Okay, so... That inspired Mary Shelley, uh, like the villagers trying to run Dr. Frankenstein out of the village with pitchforks.
1: Unclear. Again, Mary Shelley was only in this town for a couple of hours. So it's likely that sitting by the fire, you know, a local might have told her Mm -hmm. a tale or two. But I can't imagine that it was entirely based on this guy.
2: It's certainly an interesting coincidence. Uh,
1: Another interesting coincidence was that Dippel did perform a lot of experiments He started on animals, and it's rumored that he eventually turned to experimenting on human corpses that he likely stole from local graveyards. Mm -hmm. There was a rumor that he could transfer the soul from one dead body to another with the aid of a funnel.
2: Really? A common kitchen tool?
1: But it's alleged, if I remember correctly, that it was Ben Franklin's experiments with lightning that inspired... That part of the Frankenstein okay, story. Sure, that makes rather sense. Rather than a funnel.
2: <laughs> Lightning's far more dramatic <laughs> than a funnel.
1: Like instead of waiting for a dark and stormy night, and peering out the window through curtains and listening for the rumble of the impending storm, you just got to run out to Ace Hardware. Right. And get yourself a funnel.
2: Or rummage through your kitchen utensil drawer.
1: So as I said, Dippel had a stroke and died at Castle Wittenstein near Burlberg, Although his friends claimed that he was poisoned. Hmm. um, But knowing the kind of thing that he, uh, you know, passed out as being elixirs, he he may have poisoned himself. It's unclear. Mm. So Frankenstein's Castle... Yeah, the Dipple thing's kind of weird, and the fun connection to Mary Shelley is great. But even before Dipple lived there, Frankenstein Castle was rumored to have its very own natural elixir of life, hidden in the herb garden. According to a legend, if a woman drank from the secret spring on a full moon in early April... She would be restored to the age she was on her wedding day. Oh,
0: wow. Yeah. Now,
1: what if you got married twice? Would it be your first wedding day or your second wedding day? That's an
2: excellent question. I think back then they frowned upon anybody getting married more than once.
1: You just had to be alone for the rest of your life. That was the rule. (laughs) I think it was probably against the rules to be tootling about during a full moon in early April, drinking from Secret Springs. Right. But whatever, you know. The forest near the castle is also home to a very interesting natural anomaly. There are magnetic stone formations within the mountains. These formations and the, the natural magnetic... Properties of these stones are so strong that there are places where compasses will not work near the castle.
2: Oh, really? That's interesting. Mm-hmm. I lived on a farm once that had a really high metal content in the ground, and I was trying to put in a satellite dish. Yeah. And uh, kept screwing up my compass readings. Ah. I couldn't get the azimuth angle right.
1: That's really upsetting. Yeah. I was actually chatting with one of our listeners. Not long ago, about the metal contents within our bodies, and how it's bizarre how many like heavy metals we have in us, Mm. including gold. Um, To this day, Frankenstein Castle is a popular tourist destination. It's only twenty minutes from the Frankfurt International Airport, and there is a tram that moves around that area, and the stop on that tram is just called Frankenstein. <laughs> so you can uh, <laughs> you can get off the airplane and hop on the tram and go visit Frankenstein, which is definitely something I would like to do. I've been to Germany, um, but when I was like very young and stupid. So I'd like to go as an adult uh, who sure. is stupid and uh, <laughs> and see it differently now. Hmm. Uh, the castle is, of course, in ruins, but uh, there is a restaurant with a vegan menu. Oh. Um, so I'd really like to try that out. Nice. Um, um, yeah.
2: When you were in Germany, didn't you see the Backstreet Boys?
1: I did. Yeah. yeah.
2: It was before they were popular in the U.S.
1: That's right. Backstreet's wow. back. All right.
2: Yeah. You're ahead of your. You were way ahead of the curve. You were way ahead of the cultural curve at the time.
1: Yeah. It's uh, kind of embarrassing that that was my first concert, <laughs> but um, I don't know. It was a good time. I was in a beer tent. So what, what? are you going to do?
2: Yeah. You can't. Well, there was a beer tent. That's good. My first concert was um, Chopin, I think. It was his his farewell tour.
1: Your I'm old jokes
2: bore me, mister. <laughs> Chopin's back. All right.
1: <laughs> so that is the real Frankenstein's castle. Thanks so much to Allison from Indiana for sending me that topic suggestion.
2: And as we briefly alluded to, we do have two dates uh, for live shows set up. Uh, it's going to be hmm, well, toward the end of March, early April. I'll give you a general window there. We're going to be at uh, Zanies again in Nashville. Our third time at Zanies. I'm
1: so excited I could shit.
2: <laughs> well, if you do, make sure you sift through it and look for gold. <laughs>
1: so weird, because again, that's what I told the guy. I was like, I just told my fella that I think the they Discovery Channel should make a show about going through the sewers and collecting the gold and calling
2: it poop gold. Thursday at nine on Discovery, poop gold.
1: <laughs> Try it again. Uh, I need it drawn out okay. more as though you're- A little you're... more exaggerated. Yeah.
2: Yelling. Thursday at nine on the Discovery Channel, poop gold ever notice how those guys always add an extra syllable? It's like poop gold. Sifting through shit is fun. Thursday at nine.
1: Thursday at nine. Join the Discovery Channel for poop gold. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Two very unique approaches to an interpretive read. <sighs> Which is probably why the Discovery Channel has never hired either one of us. Right? Uh, you know what
1: might work, actually, is the, the whisper
2: read. Thursday at nine. Poop gold. You know who we could we could talk to about our interpretation of the read is Lindsay uh, Schneble. Lindsay Schnebley, the voice of the curator. He was he was the voice of the of uh, Animal Planet for years. We'll get it. We'll get his take on it. Anyway, uh, Nashville and then uh, Huntsville, Alabama live shows. We'll Super t- excited. T- tell you more later. We're out of here.
1: Super excited.
2: See you next time on Poop Gold.
1: Keep flying that freak flag.
0: And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. (laughs) And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True. That is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the box of oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage the box of copyright 2022 all rights reserved hi i'm neil and i'm ken
2: and we are from the triviality podcast a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets
0: a little bit of knowledge join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world plus tons of extra themed episodes
1: If you want to improve your trivia game... Or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong... Then we're the show for you. Find triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know
0: that, because you're already listening to a podcast.
2: Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here.
1: And I'm Gabby.
2: And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is... Well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis?